Hello everyone and welcome to other essay on Open Africa. Well, this is a new one um, in the sense that I'll be doing an audio version of this essay, which I hope would be the start of something new and hopefully subsequently we'll get to do this more often. And so let's get to it. After the record-breaking year that was 2021, with multiple unicorns minted, it seemed like everyone was on a high with fees bumping and happiness. But 2022 kicked off and all of a sudden, investors and operators realized that they were signing more checks than they used to, investing at higher valuations and prices. Didn't they see it coming? The last month alone, there have been multiple Zoom sessions, Twitter spaces hosted, at schools written and tweet storms with questions asking, is the African tech ecosystem in our own bubble? Are prices higher today? Heck, shouldn't startup valuations be lower? At the end of the day, startups are valued based on how much they can deliver in the future. Of course, VCs know what they are getting themselves into. They are not a charity or looking to invest in companies that grow slowly and generate enough cash flows to pay dividends. That's not the business. Most of the money invested today is for outcomes that could be an IPO or an acquisition. Not many companies get to this stage, and the common reason for this is because of the prevailing macro conditions. Here, market size. As we'll see in this essay, that's one of the that's one part of the argument. But not not all markets are created equal. To understand this, we'll go through false positives, the only thing that matters, America and the hierarchy of venture opportunities, case study, Jimmy and Flutterwave, a bubble of optimism. False positives. 2021 was Africa's coming of age moment. Even though Paystack was acquired by Stripe in 2020 and Jumia went public the year before, momentum in 2021 blew all those achievements out of the water. I listed some um, highlights in the essay and you can check about check it. It's highlights that I wrote in the previous essay. So that, mo- that momentum has continued into 2022 with $1.8 billion already raised in Q1 the year, which is about 38% of what was raised in 2021. If this funding rate continues to accelerate, we could see total Africa funding possibly exceeding $7 billion. This should be exciting, right? Well, not many are sharing the same optimism. Despite the young and fastest growing population story, the argument has always been that the value of a company should be steeped in the size of the market. It's not only founders that look at markets, but also VCs that invest in them. Even Mark Anderson of A16Z says the same. According to him, the success of a startup depends on the market more than the quality of the team or the product. The size and growth of the market remains king. VCs are looking at large markets which will lead to high returns. This is the reason why some verticals are more valuable than others. In Africa, Fintech receives much more love than, say, logistics or e-commerce, or even healthcare. Big markets should attract high valuations, right? Probably. But what's it about the African market that makes operators suggest that this may be a bubble? Dr. Ola Brown helps us with this. The only thing that matters. In 2019, Dr. Ola Brown of the Flying Doctors released an outstanding work on the market size with tech businesses in Nigeria. In it, she divided the market into three segments based on their purchasing power and annual income, namely Nigeria 1, made up of 2 million people earning an annual income of $10,000, Nigeria 2, made up of 80 to 92 million people earning an annual income between $3,000 to $9,000, and 
and you are three made up of 90 million people earning below $3,000. In the essay itself, you would see um, a hierarchy of these three um, segments and their associated um, purchasing needs. Each of these segments has different ones, needs and purchasing power. Someone in Nigeria 1 can afford to travel frequently and has the highest in premium products. Those in Nigeria 2 use services like Jumia and Uber occasionally, while the rest in Nigeria 3 live in extreme poverty and can only afford products for daily survival like salt. She ends the article by advising startups to focus on understanding the local context of the Nigeria market, create offline solutions and expand out of Nigeria as a means to achieve scale across all three segments. In a lot of ways, the article did a lot showing how difficult it is to scale in Nigeria. However, most of the advice seemed relevant to B2C companies or consumer apps. Businesses whose customers can be these are businesses whose customers can be cleanly split into the different segments described above. They have to innovate around the UI UX of apps or provide cheap or heavily discounted products to acquire users. For this group, our advice is key. But today, most of the investment dollars are going towards B2B startups who make up 48% of Nigeria's GDP. They are different from consumer startups creating opportunities for everyone to win in the long term. Emeka and the hierarchy of venture opportunities. Nine months after Dr. Ola released the article, Emeka Ajene, Gozem co-founder and curator-in-chief at High Free Digest, released his article titled The Hierarchy of Venture Opportunities in Emerging Markets. In it, Emeka used Maslow's hierarchy of needs to find underappreciated trends and opportunities to create businesses. According to Ibrahim Maslow, people's behaviors and choices are based on satisfying or some unmet needs. These needs could be physiological, safety, the need for belonging, esteem, or even the need for self-actualization. But what are the motivations for markets? Emeka came up with a framework called the Hierarchy of Venture Opportunities to identify venture opportunities based on market needs and their relative attractiveness. Following Maslow's original hierarchy, Emeka's five-step pyramid suggests that a set of basic needs must be met first before going up the ladder to tackle higher order, more complex ones. In the essay itself, you'd see a pyramid of the um, five levels of, um, of needs going from infrastructure needs up until creating new markets. So at the end of the article, Emeka remarked that his framework should, shouldn't be seen as the ranking of opportunities, but as a starting point for problem identification. Going from level one to level three, you may observe that businesses here aren't consumer startups, but are actually B2B services like Flutterwave, Combo360, and Della ETC, providing layer one services, building basic infrastructure and organizing fragmented markets that others can plug into easily. All markets are not equal, and it is this context I believe Dr. Lamp's article missed in the assess assessment of Nigerian markets. Foundations must be built first before going to the mass market. 200 million Nigerians is not a market for anybody. Moving away from theory, the wave of innovation and software development didn't always start with B2B services but with consumer startups. In the early days of the internet, commerce was among its first use cases in the US with consumer apps like Amazon and eBay founded around the time. This wasn't unique to the US. In China, early internet companies were messaging services like QQ, social media platforms like Weibo or e-commerce companies like Alibaba. 
These were all companies selling products and services to consumers who were the end users of their products or services. But after some time, B2B or enterprise companies sprung up and today form the most capitalized companies in the US. Of the 20 biggest US tech companies, excluding hardware, enterprise companies accounted for 55% by count in 2020. In the article, there so you can see a chart of the 20 US companies by market cap. So in the West, consumer startups came before B2B startups, but in Nigeria, it's the other way around, with B2B startups forming the backbone for which consumer startups can thrive. Of the companies that have raised the most money in Nigeria, a high percentage of them are B2B services. Trade Depot, Interswitch, Flutterwave, Pixar, Candela, Copper 360, and many more. Industry veteran America Okoye probably observed this in 2016, saying that B2B transactions are not what elevates the technology status of the con country. It's the B2B. Side note, I use B2B and infrastructure definitions interchangeably, so just follow me with this for now. Let's continue. But that was 2016 and things have changed. Our ecosystem is being built by B2B companies powering technology and they are shaping the future of what is possible in a way that makes higher level needs of B2B, B2C companies easier to solve. I think there are a couple of reasons for this. One, value chain optimization. Before a product gets into the hands of a customer, there are several steps that it takes in this process. In his book titled Competitive Advantage, Michael Potter has said that optimizing the process that helps companies deliver value gives them a competitive advantage. In an economy where 48% of it is supported by SMEs, using better B2B services helps them deliver products to end users in a cheaper and faster way and in a way that sustains profits. Two, compounding products. Starting a company today is much more easier than it was in 2010. At the first level of the hierarchy, startups are building basic infrastructure that other companies can use. It's like API companies, it's like APIs giving companies superpowers so that they can focus on their value proposition. As I described in the API essay earlier, B2B, B2B services let other companies focus on their value proposition instead of reinventing the wheel. Sure, not all B2B companies have the API characteristic, but those that do are used as Legos plugging into each other to make it easier to build customer-facing apps. An example of this is excellently described by Samuel Kariki of Frontiers Fintech. To build a business like cheaper cash, one has to get licensing in each market, partner with, some, with someone for identity, identity verification, back accounts for the store of value and negotiate exchange rates for settlements, partner with such a player like Flutterway for centralized liquidity management, reporting for some payment types and payments and collections for some markets. A business like Chipakash wouldn't exist today without those core infrastructure products. Building basic infrastructure, organizing and integrating fragmented markets is a way that minimizes Transaction cost means that it's easier for a young consumer fintech like cheaper cash to become a unicorn in just three years. A good way to understand this better is by observing two companies in different industries at different levels of the hierarchy. A case study, Jumia and Flutterwave. Some people might be might say comparing Jumia and Flutterwave is a case of oranges and apples. Well, that's true. But it helps us understand and identify B2B company, B2B and B2C companies at different stages of the hierarchy and what it takes to win. Jumia. 
when the Nigerian tech ecosystem began to kick off between 2010 to 2012, it seemed like e-commerce was the first use case. Well, why not? E-commerce companies like Souk was founded in 2005. Take Two was founded in 2002 before it was acquired and renamed Take a Lot in 2011. Hunger was founded in 2011. So it only made sense for investors to see Jumia as a natural extension of this trend. But after raising $1.2 billion and then going public in 2019 on the New York Stock Exchange, first African startup to do this, Jumia just never lived up to the expectations. Its share price has dropped more than 60% and currently trades at $8.74. At the current price, its market cap is around $783 million, 47% lower than the total funding it raised as a private company. Maybe this was not of its own doing, but it seemed like Jumia was a story that was too early for the Nigerian market. Using Dr. Ola's analysis, macroeconomic issues could be seen as just some of the reasons for its failures, quote-unquote failures. Jumia's customers were occasional shoppers with low disposable incomes. They were among the lower tier 1 and tier 2 customer segments described, earning between $8,000 and $9,000. For this segment, selling and delivering products like toiletries and provisions within two days or the same day for an extra fee was always going to be tough. Anything Jumia sold to Nigerians always competed with food prices. But using the hierarchy of markets framework, Jumia sits high in the pyramid between the layers of enable entrepreneurship and economic empowerment and create new markets. Jumia is a company that enabled improved economic outcomes for merchants while attempting to create new customer behaviors through online retail. They wanted to be the Amazon of Africa, but Amazon is quite different for certain reasons. One, Amazon was built on top of the existing logistics infrastructure of UPS and FedEx, and as a result, could use the scale advantages to offer low-cost products to consumers. Two, the GDP per capita in the U.S. at its IPO in 1997 was, 31, was around $31,000, 15x more than it is today in Nigeria in 2022, which is around $2,000. Three, Amazon was already a global company at the time of its IPO presence in multiple com- countries. As the hierarchy suggests, building products at lower levels make it easier to build those higher up the pyramid. Jumia started at a time when fundamental building blocks were not available and so had to build those to support its operations. It built its own logistic networks, provide, payments provider, and is now even becoming an advertising company. Doing all of these don't come cheap. Jumia remains a loss-making venture, shuttling down operations in multiple countries to manage bond. Whether this form of vertical integration can give it compounding advantages in the long term is up for speculation. But as Jason Njoku says, nothing beats getting the unique economics right before scaling. Flutterwave. If you've been following the African tech landscape, you've probably noticed that you've probably noticed the cycles. The first cycle was dominated by e-commerce companies, as we described earlier. That lasted for about for almost a decade before giving way to a new one. And that's the thing about cycles, the rise and the fall. Today's cycle is led by fintech companies championed by the likes of Fowry, Paystack, MFS, Africa, Cheaper Cash, and so forth. But it feels like the company that is leading the charge is Flutterwave. Flutterwave was the first company I wrote about at Open Africa. Well, you can go to the essay and check out my Flutterwave article.
But the idea that B2B services fundamental to creating and supporting consumer apps was not one I had conceived before. For a business like Flutterwave, here's how they may have exploited the hierarchy. 1. The levels 1 and 2 about infrastructure were solved in their payments product. 2. The levels 3 and 4 about reducing friction for entrepreneurship were solved with their commerce product that allows merchants to create an e-commerce store. 3. The level 5 product, level 5, which is about creating new markets as described by Emeka, is very rare and poorly understood. Still, Flutterway might claim to have reached this summit with their array of products, including capsule and card issuing, that stunning startups into just features. With Flutterwave, more businesses have endless possibilities all the way up as their impact continues to compound a bubble of optimism. So, are we in a bubble? Maybe. The purpose of this article wasn't to give a binary answer as to whether or not we are in one. If you want an answer to that, you may look to Nicole Dune of Founders Factory who presents a case that we aren't in a bubble. Well, to be honest, I believe some startups are more bubbly than others. There are at least 250 fintechs in Nigeria. With only Paystack as the quote-unquote only exit, this number is too damn high. Maya of Ingressive Capital was just, ama- was just as amazed by this saying, there are consumer fintechs with talks of over 500 million valuations and I don't know anyone who is this product. Um, side note, please, if you know what company she was referring to, please kindly DM. Thank you. Let's continue. So the arrogance suggests that the market and prices will continue to go up without any correction. It would also be arrogant to suggest that this essay answers the bubble question by saying all B2B companies are going to win their markets. I believe the hierarchy of venture opportunities gives us a good guide for where opportunities exist and should be exploited. But apart from it, Operators should also consider the following as the scrutinized valuations. 1. Are there enough local businesses that could be disrupted by the new technology or startup? 2. How close are valuations to the exact market size? 3. What happens once there is no longer dry powder? Are the unit economics resilient enough on the path to profitability? It took Paga 11 years before expanding to new markets. There is a balancing effort between to win new markets and it involves balancing customer acquisition with retention. Getting customers is a function of market need. Retaining customers is a product need. Does business know where it stands? In my one year stint in VC, I've observed that economic growth and development rarely follows a straight line. Jumia and the many e-commerce companies that existed in the 2010 struggled, but through this, other businesses discovered problems that should be solved first before moving up the hierarchy. Some may even go ahead to suggest that there was an e-commerce bubble around this time. Even if our ecosystem is a bubble that burst, it can be good for two reasons. An African tech bubble wouldn't cause global ripple effects like the dot-com bubble. An African, African investment was only about 4% of US investments in 2021. Well, local investors and the third to fifth market leaders may get bonds. And this will be tough, but it means that more consolidation will happen. Two, as more later stage companies grow and hopefully exit, we can access, assess what business models work and who the eventual winners are. It will 
also make everyone perceive Africa as a real market that needs well-informed capital and support. I believe that good things should be expensive because their values, it gives values to their intrinsic worth. Concluding the words of David Cohen in the context of today, a crash may be crucial in shaking systems, forcing investors and founders to return to the fundamentals. A possible technology crash might be the signal that the whole continent has become a real investment destination of sufficient size to attract increased global economic attention and with the potential to have a massive impact in the future. That's it for this week, guys. And thank you so much for reading and listening to this new um, content format. I hope that I'll be able to um, be consistent in this going forward. And if you love this essay, if you love this audio, um, please share it to anyone that you feel would benefit from it, your bosses, your friends, fellow journalists, co-workers, anyone else. And if you want to um, share your story or talk about this, um, you can email me or send a DM and I'll be happy to respond. Thank you so much.